0: The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Of our sermon this morning, Two Ways to Walk. Two Ways to Walk. This is part three. We've been working through this text in Romans chapter eight. We come now to verses nine through eleven, and we'll conclude this brief series, Two Ways to Walk, this morning. So welcome back to our ongoing consideration now of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. We're now working through Romans chapter 8, where in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul has begun his closing arguments, as it were. In a case that he's been building, and that case is for the absolute security of our salvation. Paul wants you to be assured that the salvation that you've been delivered to, the salvation that you've been given, is certain to you, is assured to you, and it's absolutely assured to you on the basis of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ alone. That assured status, that security, is for the one who has been justified through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, apart from works of the law. You didn't have anything to do with it, in other words. And because it is entirely of grace, because it is entirely the work of God applied by the Spirit through the person and work of Jesus Christ, it is sure to all the seed. Now, our text and those closing arguments began with the triumphant declaration of verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who have been delivered from the condemnation of the guilt due their sin, those who have been delivered from the condemnation due the enslaving power of their sin, are those who have been freed from that bondage so that they might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. That is not a capability that is native, if you will, that, that they have in and of themselves. It's not a disposition native, even to the one who has been freed from that bondage. We can't do it on our own. But rather, as we've seen, that fulfilling of the righteous requirements of the law is only possible for the one who has been born again from above. Born again by the Spirit of God, vitally united to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, the one under the the loving kindness, the operations of his effectual grace, indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is at work within him, and the one to whom he has yielded his will to obey as he works and walks in the Christian life. As such, that one justified by faith, reconciled to God, at peace with God, that one is one who does not walk according to the flesh. He does not walk according to the natural lusts and appetites of his sinful flesh and sinful mind. He's not walking according to the course of this world. He's not walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He's not a child of wrath. But rather, Christians are those who walk according to the spirit, no longer consistently obeying no longer making it a habit of obeying that former wicked and evil slave master of sin, that principle of sin and death that once reigned in the faculties of your soul. But now the Christian is one who submits themselves to the rule and reign of a new master, the Spirit of God, who has taken up residence within them. Sin has been condemned in the flesh of God's own Son at the cross, his, his death to sin has become our death to sin, and the power of sin has been broken. Now, it's in this way, it's through those truths, and it's in this way that Paul has established in our text a contrast between those who walk according to the Spirit and those who walk according to the flesh. And Paul is drawing a distinction, he's making a contrast between two distinct groups of people, two distinct groups principles at work, two standards of conduct, two distinct ways to walk. This is not a contrast, as we've learned. This is not a contrast between carnal Christians and spiritual Christians. Rather, this is a contrast between those who are not Christians and those who are Christians, right? Those who are on the broad road that lead to destruction and those who are on the narrow and difficult way which leads to life. It's a contrast between those who are dead in trespasses and sins, those who are unregenerate, and those who have been made alive in Christ Jesus, those who have been regenerate or born again by work of the Spirit. Now, first, think with me. Those two distinct ways of walking are each characterized by a distinct disposition of heart and mind. A distinct disposition, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh, what do they do? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. The works of the flesh, those things which gratify our sinful flesh, become the absorbing objects of our thoughts, of our attention, of our efforts, of our imaginations, of our affections. But rather, those who live according to the Spirit, what do they do? They set their minds on the things of the Spirit the works of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, good works, so to speak, those things which satisfy their hunger and thirst for righteousness. They become the absorbing objects. Those things of the Spirit become the absorbing objects of their thoughts and of their imaginations and of their desires and of their affections and of their actions. So first, those two distinct ways to walk, each characterized by a distinct disposition. Second, Those distinct ways to walk, each characterized by a particular fruit. Those distinct ways to walk, distinguished by a distinct destination. Verse 6. To be carnally minded, then, is death. That native disposition brings forth death, leads to death, and that death under the judgment of God. While to be spiritually minded, what fruit does that produce? To be spiritually minded is life and peace. That new disposition is the fruit of peace with God and the end of that everlasting life. In other words, brothers and sisters, if we serve the flesh to obey it in its lusts, then no matter your profession, if you serve the flesh to obey it in its lusts, then no matter what you profess no matter what you think about your relationship to Jesus Christ, no matter your confidence that you are on your way to heaven, in truth, if you serve the lust of the flesh and walk according to the flesh rather than walking according to the Spirit, then you have no warrant by which you can call yourself a Christian. You understand? He who sows to his flesh will what? Will of the flesh reap corruption. Will of the flesh, reap corruption. Now, last week, we considered Paul's description of that carnally-minded man in verses 7 and 8. His mind at enmity against God, incapable of being subject to the law of God, incapable of pleasing God. That's the one in the flesh, which now this morning brings us to Paul's description of the spiritually-minded man in verses 9 through 11. It's a text that will occupy our attention this morning. Now, from verses 9 to 11, in its most basic form, the premise that Paul seeks to assert now in his description of the spiritually minded man is this. The spiritually minded man, the one who walks according to the spirit rather than according to the flesh, is one who is indwelt by the spirit of God. That's Paul's assertion. Very simple, very clear. The one who walks according to the spirit, the one who sets his mind on the things of the spirit, The one who is in the Spirit is one who is indwelt by the Spirit of God. A Christian is a person who has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. It is an indescribable gift, the gift of the Spirit of God. You have God, the triune God, dwelling in you through the Spirit. It's an amazing thought. Those who walk according to the Spirit, those who have their minds set on the things of the Spirit, are those who do those things because the Spirit of God dwells within them. You see, they're indwelt by the Spirit. And it's the presence of the Spirit that is then evidenced or manifested in the life of a Christian. And how is it evidenced? Or how is it manifested? It's manifested in a life that is walked According to the things of the Spirit, walked in the power of the Spirit, walked according to the standard of conduct that is associated with the one who indwells them. That is the law of God. I've planned for us to consider Paul's premise here under three headings. Three headings. The spiritually minded man is indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, and the presence of the Spirit is manifested in the way that he lives his life. And Paul supports that premise. By describing the indwelling of the Spirit in terms of, first, a conclusion, second, an outcome, and third, a promise. A conclusion, an outcome, and a promise. Now notice first, Paul, in thinking about this and in calling us to think about these things, Paul draws or comes to a profound conclusion. As stated previously, Paul has commenced closing arguments, if you will, In his case, for the believer's security, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and there is, at the conclusion of the chapter, nothing which will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. However, Paul is also being very careful to establish the condition upon which that security is true. In other words, it's not an empty security. You can't just come to the Lord Jesus Christ, making a decision, professing faith in him, and on the basis of what? Your word? You're going to be secure forever? No. Now, that's called easy believism. The Bible doesn't teach that. There are many who do. Paul is very careful to establish the condition upon which the believer's security is based. And that condition that Paul has in mind, verse 9, is the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. It's going to be very important that we understand that when we get to making application of these things to our lives, okay? The condition upon which the security of the believer is assured is the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. Verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but rather in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ no matter what he professes, no matter what he claims, no matter what he thinks, no matter how he feels, if he does not have the Spirit of Christ, verse 9, he is not his. Okay? Now, Paul's description of the spiritually minded man now opens in contrast to the carnally minded man. Do You see that at the beginning of verse 9. The carnally-minded man walks according to the flesh. He has set his mind on the things of the flesh. That mindset is bearing fruit to death. His carnal mind not subject to the law of God. His carnal mind incapable of being subject to the law of God. And so the one who is in the flesh, verse 8, cannot please God. It's that condition that speaks to the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of total inability. Total depravity and total inability. But, verse 9, but in contrast... You can be assured that you are not in the flesh, that you are not that carnally-minded man who walks according to the flesh. You can be assured of that if you are in the Spirit. If, notice the condition, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God dwelling within the believer is the condition upon which the believer is said to be in the spirit. The spirit of God dwelling within the believer is the condition upon which the spirit is said to be in the believer and the believer is said to be in the spirit or walking according to the spirit. The spirit in the believer and the believer in the spirit, two distinguishable conditions, but so Mutually inseparable, that the presence of one condition serves to validate or confirm the presence of the other condition. You see, they're both intertwined. They're married, as it were. The mutual inseparability of these two conditions is, reflect, is reflected in that conjunction translated there if indeed. If indeed. You are in the spirit. How do I know? You are in the spirit if indeed the Spirit is in you. You might think to yourself, why would, why would Paul make that? It sounds like a distinction without a difference. Why would Paul use that language and make that very point? And I want to explain that to us so that we can live according to this promise. So certain is the condition, so certain is this connection that it clearly establishes the contrast that Paul's concerned with in verse 9, where Paul draws the inevitable conclusion then, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. The one who walks according to the flesh, the one who is in the flesh, is not his. The one who walks according to the flesh doesn't belong to Christ. The one who walks according to the flesh is not a Christian, you see? He does not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's not been united to Jesus Christ through faith. He is a stranger to the blessings and benefits of that saving union with Jesus Christ. By contrast, by contrast, every Christian is in the Spirit. Every Christian walks according to the Spirit. That means every Christian has the Spirit of God in them. Every Christian is one in whom the Spirit of Christ has come to dwell. He has taken up residence within the Christian. Incidentally, I'm going to give you an aside. It's text like this that should put an end to the filioque controversy. Filioque controversy. The filioque controversy began over debate regarding the procession of the Spirit. Was the Spirit sent exclusively from the Father... Or did the Spirit proceed from both the Father and the Son? It's a controversy. It's about a thousand-year-old controversy. The word filioque means and from the Son. That's what the word means, Latin word, and from the Son. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 settles the debate. Settles the debate. Notice verse 9, it's the Spirit. The Spirit is referred to as both the Spirit of God and, verse 9, the Spirit of Christ. Amen. The descriptions are used synonymously, Meaning that the Spirit proceeds from both. Proceeds from God the Father and proceeds from God the Son. Our confession affirms this. Chapter 1, Article 3. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. Murray, the Holy Spirit sustains to Christ a relationship similar to that which he sustains to the Father. He proceeds from both Father and Son. Anytime we can settle a thousand-year debate by understanding a text of Scripture, it's probably a good idea that we do so. Probably, probably a good idea to take a couple of minutes in the text. We should probably call someone and let them know the debate has been settled. Okay. So, uh, filioque controversy. Okay. Those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ have the very presence of Christ himself with them by his Spirit. That's why it's important. Those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ says, John 14, he's not going to leave us orphans. He will come to us, and he comes to us by his spirit. If you have his spirit dwelling within you, then you are certainly in Christ, united to Christ through faith. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Not his. Really becomes a very important distinction for examining whether or not you're in the faith whether or not you belong to him. Very important distinction. Now, there are several reasons why this is critically important to understand. Let me just give you a couple. Several reasons. One, there are a whole, a whole host of Charismatics and Pentecostals that teach otherwise. Really important to understand this because there are innumerable Charismatics and Pentecostals that teach otherwise. Many would teach that there is often a gap between the time that someone is saved and the time they receive the baptism of the Spirit. There is no gap between the time that someone is saved and the time that they receive the Spirit. They attempt to connect, for example, the gift of tongues or the gift of prophesying with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the gift of tongues or you don't have the gift of prophesying, then you don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Essentially, believing that there are genuine Christians, genuine Christians who don't have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. A, that's entirely wrong. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. B, even the first century gifts like tongues, like prophesying, were incidental to the baptism of the Spirit, and not essential to the baptism of the Spirit. Not everyone had the gift. Not everyone got the gifts. They were signs in that they pointed to something. They're called sign gifts for a reason. They point to something. They were revelatory gifts in the sense that they pointed to revelation. And now that God's revelation has been completed, that foundation laid, those sign gifts have in turn ended. Why have those sign gifts ended? Why have we seen them, experienced them, as having ended because they've served their purpose. They've served their purpose. And now you have a, simply a bunch of people making complete fools out of themselves, talking gibberish in the name of the Holy Spirit. It's not biblical what's going on. It's not biblical. See, many who profess such gifts in our day are actually lost. The Lord said in Matthew chapter seven, listen, many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who what? Practice lawlessness, work iniquity. In other words, many, many, the Lord is saying, many who have professed to be working wonders by the Spirit are actually those who have been walking according to the flesh. What is the distinction? Those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the Spirit. What's the distinction that you and I need to be concerned with? Whether we have the Spirit, whether we're in Christ, it's whether or not you walk according to the Spirit or whether you walk according to the flesh. If you're walking according to the flesh, you do not have the Spirit. And if you do not have the Spirit, you are none of His. Do you see? That's the critical issue. Many who have professed to be working wonders by the Spirit are actually walking according to the flesh. What is the evidence that they are walking according to the flesh. The evidence is that they practice or make a habit of lawlessness. Every believer, every believer has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what is the manifestation or the evidence of that gift? The manifestation or evidence of that gift is that we walk according to the Spirit. You set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You have your mind, your heart, your affections set upon those things which accord with life by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, listen. In him, in Jesus Christ, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Right? You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and hearing the gospel, you trusted in Jesus Christ, in whom also... Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. When you believe, the Lord sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise. That spirit of promise, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Notice it's a who and not an it. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Having believed, you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaching at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23, God says, Turn at my rebuke. That's a reference to repentant faith. Turn at my rebuke, and surely I will pour out my Spirit on you. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. First, it's important to understand Because there are many who teach the opposite, and we need to know what the Bible says. And this is going to become very important for how we live the Christian life. Secondly, let's get to that point. Secondly, believing that you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, at work within you, is important. Because walking according to the Spirit is a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. You, brother, sister, you are to work out your own salvation, Paul says to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, and how is it that you are to do that? Knowing, believing that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We're working out our own salvation, not our own strength, Not in our own power, not because we have somehow dreamed up that this thing is right, but we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing, believing that it is God who is at work in us, in power by his spirit to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He's going to sanctify you. You're not going to be responsible exclusively on your own, responsible for your own sanctification. God uses means, and he's going to use the means, as our brother was talking about, the means of our diligent effort. But God is going to be the one who wins for us that sanctification. Henry Skugel wrote a terrific little tract entitled, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. I highly commend it to you. The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And Henry Skugel wrote this. Christians have spied the land. They've seen that it is exceedingly good, that it floweth with milk and honey. But they find that they have the children of Anak, giants, to grapple with. And many powerful lusts and corruptions to overcome. And they fear that they shall never prevail against them. But why should we give way to such discouraging suggestions? Let me make an aside with respect to what Henry Scougal just said. Christians, they spy out the land and they look. They count the cost of following Christ. And the, the cost is high. And the way is difficult, which leads to life. It is hard fought. You're going to be battling against your sin. Right? You've got to strive. The word means to agonize, to live the Christian life. There are many, brothers and sisters, there are many people in the world today in professing evangelicalism who don't think of the Christian life as any work at all. They come to Christ having made a decision, having professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, having made that provision, prof- <coughs> profession, there's no effort required on their part at all, and they float as if on flowery beds of ease to what they think is heaven. And there's no internal battle. There's no internal fight. There's no striving. There's no agony. There's no difficulty. The way is easy. Well, let me ask you, if the way is easy and if the way is broad and you look around and find many people on the same road as you, what road are you on? The way is narrow and the way is difficult, which leads to life. Count the cost. Henry Scougal, they've spied out the land. They find that they have giants to grapple with, many powerful lusts, corruptions to overcome. They fear they shall never prevail against them. That's the, the experience of the Christian. Amen? Why should we give way to such discouraging suggestions, School asks? Why should we entertain such unreasonable fears which damp our spirits, weaken our hands, and augment the difficulties in our way? Why? Well, let us encourage ourselves, my dear friend. Let us encourage ourselves with those mighty aids we are to expect in this spiritual warfare. For greater is he that is for us than all that rise up against us. The eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Let us be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not by our own strength, not by our own power, but by his spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Let us be strong in the Lord and the power of his might for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. Amen. How does he do it? The Lord does it through the power of his spirit indwelling the believer. Praise God that we are in the spirit and we have the spirit of God in us. The spiritual, spiritually minded man is one whom Paul describes in terms of a mutual indwelling. And Paul Then draws a profound conclusion. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. A second, second. Paul then calls us to think of the spiritually minded man in terms of an inevitable outcome. An inevitable outcome, verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Verse 9, Paul clearly asserts that the Spirit of Christ indwells every believer. Everyone who has been united to Jesus Christ through faith, in other, in other words, everyone who is his, has the Spirit of Christ in terms of his indwelling presence. We, Paul says, doesn't he, we become the temple of the living God. Why? Because we are the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. That's why Paul calls us the temple. Now, verse 10. Paul then restates the condition, and he points us to an inevitable outcome. Verse 10. And if Christ is in you, note the condition, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. It's interesting. Having spoken of the spirit of God dwelling in us, Paul now speaks of Christ dwelling in us. Do you see? Proceeds from both God the Father and God the Son, He does so without confusing the work of the Spirit, without boring the distinctions between the members of the Godhead, without eliminating distinctive operations. How can he get away with that? How can Paul get away with that? It's because Jesus Christ is God. You see? Another example of the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Because Christ and the Spirit share the same divine essence, because Christ and the Spirit share the same divine will, distinct in their persons, but inseparable in their operations. That's the doctrine of inseparability. Inseparable in their operations. To say that the Spirit of God dwells in us, and to say that the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, is to say that Christ dwells in us, or is to say that God dwells in us. All simply different ways of expressing the same reality. Where the Father is, there is the Son. And where the Father and the Son are, there is the Spirit. That's seen beautifully in the Lord's promise to his disciples in John 14. Turn there with me to John chapter 14. A few pages back to the left, John 14. In John 14, the Lord is in the upper room with his disciples. The Lord is giving them parting words before he leaves them, laying down his life voluntarily at the cross. He's just revealed to Peter that Peter will deny him three times. Their way will be difficult, and the Lord's intention in his upper room discourse here is to comfort them, to encourage them in light of the difficulties, the difficult ministry that is about to come upon them. And one of the most precious promises that he gives them in advance of his death is the promise of his own abiding presence through the indwelling of his spirit. He's going to leave them. He's going to leave them, and the disciples love the Lord. The Lord loves those men. And he tells us, he gives us the same promise by virtue of this text. And the Lord says, don't worry, let not your hearts be troubled. I am going to come to you, and I'm going to come to you in the presence of my spirit. Verse 15, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's what love for the Lord looks like, right? Keep my commandments. Verse 16, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, That he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. They're walking according to the flesh. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Those three or four verses are about eight or ten sermons. It's like... (laughs) And it it just grieves me to keep moving, but that's what we're going to do. The Lord is describing, no uncertain terms, what Paul implies in Romans chapter 8, verse 10. In the experience of his own people, the Lord Jesus Christ visits. He comes to and visits his people in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he does so through the gift of the Father and the Spirit will be with them forever. Forever. Verse 19, A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. We see that again, uh, that language repeated in the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, the high priestly prayer in John 17. That idea of this mutual indwelling, this communion that is so intimate with the triune God that we can conceive of that or language is used to describe that in terms of I in my Father, you in me, and I in you, you in the Spirit, and the Spirit in you, the triune God dwelling in you. Listen, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. How does the Lord manifest himself to them? He comes to them by his Spirit. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord... How is it that you will manifest yourself to us? He's going to answer the question. And not to the world. Jesus said in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. How does he keep his word? How do they keep his word? In their own strength? No, they keep his word by virtue of the Spirit who indwells them. And my Father will love him. And, verse 23, we, Father, Son, and Spirit, will come to him and make our home with him. Through the indwelling of the Spirit, both Father and Son make their home in the believer. Through the indwelling of the Spirit, the triune God abides with the believer. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean, then, in the practical experience of the believer? What is the outcome? Well, to answer that question back in Romans chapter 8, To answer that question, what does this mean in the practical experience of the believer? To answer that question, Paul now reframes the original contrast. The original contrast between those who walk in the flesh and those who walk in the Spirit. He's going to reform or reframe that contrast in terms of the believer. And he applies it to the one who's placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He applies the contrast to the believer. Verse 10, and if Christ is in you, there's the condition, if that is true, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now he speaks, with reference to body, verse 10, he speaks of our physical body. Right? But here's the outcome. Think with me now. According to Romans 6, 4, believers who have been united to Jesus Christ through faith are buried with Christ through baptism, Paul says, into death so that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory or the power of the Father, even so, those who have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, they are raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in newness of life. And yet, although that's true, we are raised to walk in newness of life, we will be raised in the resurrection, And yet, believers are liable to physical death. Have you ever thought about that before? If we've been, if our penalty's been paid, why is it that believers still die? Physical death will be the practical experience of every Christian prior to those alive at the return of Jesus Christ. If you're alive when Jesus Christ returns, praise God, uh, you're going to miss out on that. You're going to be caught up with him. (laughs) But every... Other Christian is going to die. You will go to the grave. Your flesh will see corruption. It is appointed for men once to die and then the judgment. For the unbeliever, for the one who walks according to the flesh, physical death, if you will, is just one small part of the divine wrath that they're going to suffer for their sin. Physical death is just the beginning. That isn't the case for the believer. That's not the case for the believer. Christ is born the curse of the law in our place. He died a substitutionary, sacrificial death in our place, on our behalf. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So why is it that believers still die first? Because, Paul explains in verse 10, our body is dead because of sin. Our body is dead because of sin. The body, verse 10, referring to our physical flesh, what Paul calls in verse 11, our mortal flesh body? It's dead because of the principle of sin and death. That's chapter 8, verse 2. It's dead because that principle of sin and death is present in our corruptible flesh. Our physical bodies, to quote one commentator, are the prey of death. Death preys on our physical flesh, on our physical bodies. When Paul says that the body is dead because of sin, he points back to Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Sin entered the world and death through sin. Why? It's because all in Adam all sinned and in Adam all then die. He points back to a principle introduced in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. Now Paul Reasserts the fact then, in verse 10, reasserts the fact that death has invaded our practical experience as human beings on account of our sin. Though the Lord has paid the penalty due our sin, the Lord has yet to fully remove the presence or the effects of sin from creation, and we're going to suffer those effects. Death is a physical effect of sin. Until the Lord permanently removes those effects of sin, the last enemy to destroy, be, be destroyed is death, we're going to experience death in this life. Now, there's one sense, think with me, there's one sense in which we are still awaiting the redemption of our body. We're going to look at that text in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. It's going to be 12 or 15 sermons from now. Uh, um, we're still awaiting the redemption of our body, right? The adoption. And that when that happens... It, it's what Paul describes in First Corinthians 15 as our corruptible putting on incorruption, or our mortal putting on immortality. There will day, a day come. Our brother was talking about that during Sunday school, where we'll put off this earthly tent, temporary dwelling, and be given a building, permanent dwelling from heaven, made without hands. Until then, until that time, the body is dead because of sin. Do you see? But second, why is it the believer still dying? Second, rather than suffering condemnation for sin, death for the believer. I like how the the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. Question 42, the Heidelberg Catechism. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? That's the question. Here's the answer. Our death, the death of the believer, does not pay the debt of our sins. Jesus Christ has paid the debt for our sins. Rather, death for the believer puts an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. Death for the believer puts an end to our sinning. Praise God. That's why we can approach death without fear. Um, R.C. Sproul once said that uh, he didn't fear death. He did fear dying. <laughs> dying, that physical process, is a, fearful, is a fearful thing. But to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And we can enter that death with courage and with faith and with trust and with hope right in the Lord. While we may not be set free from the experience, from ex- we may not be set free from experiencing the effects of sin in this life, and one of those effects, the experience of physical death, We certainly have been freed from a slavish fear of death. That's Hebrews chapter 2, right? And all our lifetime, that slavish fear of death had subjected us to bondage. But death no longer has any sting. (laughs) Hades no longer has any victory. And just as Christ has been raised from the dead, so also we shall be raised to life in him. Romans 8, verse 10. And if Christ is in you, if he's in you by the Spirit, the body is dead because of sin, but notice the contrast. Here's the outcome. The Spirit is a life because of righteousness. Now, he, he dovetails nicely with this in verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, there's the condition again, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Those are connected thoughts, verses 10 and 11. Now, think with me. Paul comes to a profound conclusion. If the Spirit of God dwells within you, then by virtue of his abiding presence with you, God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead by the Spirit, God the Father will give you life. As both the Father and the Son come to make their home with us through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, God is life. The father is the source of life. He has life within himself. The son was granted, that's John chapter five, granted to have life within himself. And the son is the resurrection and the life. And so if the father who is life and the son who is life take up their abode within the believer by the spirit who is the spirit of life, what do you think is the outcome of that indwelling? It is life by the spirit right? You, Jesus Christ has conquered death. You will die physically, never to die again. Like Jesus Christ will be raised like he was raised. The son is the resurrection of the life. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see, that's the interpretation You can figure that out, can't you, what that means in this context? And if the triune God has made his home with you, then you will live. And that life by the Spirit, verse 10, is that life identified with the Spirit as overturning or overcoming physical death with the resurrection. That conclusion then is drawn, verse 10, because of righteousness. We have that as our, as our outcome because of verse 10, because of righteousness. Verse 10, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life, and that because of righteousness, because of an accomplished righteousness that has been imputed to the believer through faith. We're reminded that this resurrection life that will overturn death in the resurrection of believers is not in and of ourselves. We've not been given that possession, as it were, so that we can have it in and of ourselves. It is dependent entirely upon the work of Jesus Christ. It's life by virtue of the person and work of Christ through the gospel. It's life because of righteousness, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ secured for the believer. It's like saying it's life through the gospel. Through the gospel we have life. Life because of righteousness. Life because of the work of Christ. Life because of the gospel. The spiritually minded man is characterized by life. Spiritually-minded man, we've covered two points now. Characterized by a mutual indwelling that leads to a profound conclusion. Second, spiritually-minded man is characterized by a fruitful indwelling that leads to a hope-bolstering outcome. And finally, third, he's characterized by a promise that is associated with the indwelling of the Spirit. Look with me at verse 11. Hang in there with me. Verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if that spirit dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also certainly give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Once again, Paul begins by stating the condition, the condition. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if the spirit of God If the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, in other words, if the Spirit who proceeds from the Father dwells in you, then, here's the promise to those who have placed their faith in Christ, here's the promise made to you. The Father who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you from the dead, will raise you to life. How does he do that? Means. By the means of his Spirit who dwells within you. It's important that the spirit indwells us in so many ways. It's critical that the Spirit of God indwells us. We could not live apart from the Spirit. We don't have time to get into this at this point. This will be a sermon for another day, but think this will be worth thinking about, meditating on. The New covenant, the New covenant, is a promise of God to the people of God that He will take out their stony heart. Give them a heart of flesh and he will cause them to walk in his statutes and judgments and to keep them. That's a promise of the new covenant. How is it possible? How is it possible that the people of God have life in him and walk according to his statutes? We could use the language of Romans chapter eight, verse four to ask, how is it possible that the people of God are able to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law? How is it possible Because God says, and I will put my spirit within you. So let me ask the question then. Are all those who are saved, are they all saved by virtue of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, they are. Because the Lord Jesus Christ shed his own blood in purchase, poured out his blood in purchase of the new covenant. We heard that this morning in the Lord's Supper. He secured the new covenant in his own blood. He secured the gift of the Spirit. So let me ask you, is anyone, is anyone able to live and walk in the Lord and obey the Lord and to keep his statutes and judgments, is anyone capable of living apart from the indwelling Spirit? No. Let me ask it another way. Are all those who are saved by virtue of the new covenant, do all those who are saved by virtue of the new covenant, do they get all the blessings and benefits of the new covenant? Yes, they do. And is everyone who is saved, are they all saved by virtue of the new covenant, by virtue of the person and work of Jesus Christ alone? Yes, they are. From Adam to the end. Everyone who is saved is saved through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as expressed in the new covenant. Then, let me ask you, do all believers, Old Testament and New, are they all indwelt by the Spirit? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. All right? There's a way of interpreting what the New Testament refers to as the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. We'll talk about that another time. That's just food for thought. I'm not going to charge you anything for that. You just, right? There's something for you to think about, for you to think about. And we'll talk about that another time. Okay. In verse 11, Paul's condition, his promise, and his means Even as the father has raised his son from the dead, you'll be raised from the dead in your union with him. And that will be accomplished through the means of the indwelling spirit. Brothers and sisters of that, you can have a confident, well-established hope. A certain hope, a sure hope, an assured hope. Paul's been building his case, right? He's presenting now closing arguments in chapter eight for his case for the security of, of the believer. Our salvation, because it is dependent upon God alone, because it is all of grace, our salvation is certain. It is inviolable. No one will thwart his plan, his purpose, and say to him, what have you done? God is omnip- omnipotent, all-powerful. He is protocrator, God Almighty. And he will see to it, you have an assured hope of resurrection life. Why? Because of the indwelling of God's spirit. The Christian is the one who has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's work can be thought of in several categories. Two in particular. One, the Spirit's work can be thought of in terms of his regenerating work, his regenerating work. That regenerating work comes before repentance and faith. That being made alive makes repentance and faith possible. You were formerly dead in trespasses and sins and all you can do as dead in trespasses and sins is stinketh <laughs> but having made you alive by his spirit you turn in repentant faith to the lord jesus christ speaking of cause and effect and the gospel it, regenerating work of the spirit makes the gospel effectual makes grace effectual revelation effectual So there's his regenerating work, but also there's his indwelling work, his indwelling work. Where in his indwelling work, Ephesians chapter 1, he is the pledge. He is the earnest of our future inheritance. He is the guarantee of our future inheritance. The Lord Jesus Christ essentially says, this is my promise to you. To all who put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can rest that the Lord Jesus Christ has promised to you that he will certainly come. You are sealed by the Spirit as a guarantee. And he who raised Christ from the dead, promise, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. You will be raised from the dead to all that God has promised you in and through the work of his Son. The indwelling Spirit is your guarantee. Now, Think with me about application. I'd ask the question, do you belong to him? Are you his? He who does not have the Spirit is none of his. So to answer that question, we'd have to ask ourselves, do I have the Spirit? What does it mean? By what means do you know that you are united to Jesus Christ through faith? By what means? Many profess to belong to him. Many would say, I'm a Christian. I think at last... I heard the percentage in the United States of America of all places was that 85% of the people in our country profess to be Christians. Um, Many profess to know him. How do you know that you know him? How do you know? Well, you can say, you can answer that question. I know that I am in Christ. I know that I am his by his spirit who dwells in me. I know that I'm his because I have the spirit, Dwelling within me. And so, the obvious question for many of you who um, have gone through this little self examination experiment before in your practical Christian experience, which I have uh, many times, um, how do you know that the Spirit is in you? How do you know? You say, I am His because the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, dwells within you. How do you know the Spirit dwells in you? Well, you walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. We're not talking about sinless perfection. We're talking about the direction of your life, right? The direction of your life. I walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. That's the only way that you can know, looking at your own practical experience, the only way that you can know. Are you walking according to the Spirit, or are you walking according to the flesh? What do you set your mind on? What do you set your heart on? Is your mind set on the things of the flesh? Are you making a regular habit, a regular pattern of having your mind set upon the things of this world, set upon the flesh, fulfilling the lusts and desires of the flesh? Is that what your mind is set on? And you're carnally minded. And carnally mindedness brings forth not life. Carnally mindedness brings forth death. Or, or, is your mind set upon the things of the Spirit? Some people don't even like this line of questioning because it challenges their built-up walls of self-justification that they have erected over many years to protect them from the truth and to protect them from having to deal with this very question. They just want to believe that everything's going to work out in the end and be okay. Listen, just sticking your head in the ground is not going to help you. Take your head out of the sand— and think upon what Paul is asserting here from the text. How do you know that you have the Spirit within you? Examine your walk. Make your calling and election sure. Are you setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, or are you setting your mind on the things of the flesh? If you're setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, then you are going to walk according to the things of the Spirit. As our brother said earlier, you're going to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge. Is your mind set on the things of the flesh, or is it set on the things of the Spirit? Many claim, notice here that Paul says nothing of the gifts. I spoke in tongues, some gibberish language which no one can understand, and so I know. No. He's focused on two ways to walk, two ways to walk, one according to the flesh, the other according to the Spirit. The journey, brothers and sisters, that, we are on as those indwelt by the Spirit, as those walking according to the Spirit, is a step-by-step progressive journey over a lifetime that has as its interest or has as its focus increasing godliness, increasing holiness, and increasing love for the things of God, and increasing hunger and thirst for righteousness, conformity, increasing conformity into the image of God. Of God's Son. Set your feet upon that path. Set your feet upon that path in faith. Faith in God for the work of God's Spirit. Cry out to God, believing that the Spirit of God dwells within you. Embrace that truth in faith and cry out to God for help by His Spirit to help you live the Christian life. Make your calling and election sure. Walk in the Spirit, Paul says, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. All praise, honor, and glory to the one who has given, the gift, given us the gift of his Spirit. Amen? Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful to you for the gift of your Spirit. We acknowledge in and of ourselves that apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. We would be doomed to hopelessness and to failure, to sin, and ultimately to death. We praise you, Lord, for this indescribable gift of your spirit, whereby the triune God takes up residence within us and works within us the will and do according to your good pleasure, to see to it, Lord, by virtue of the new covenant, um, secured in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it is applied in the life of everyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that you, Lord, are... Uh, securing that ultimate outcome of life by your Spirit who dwells within us. Thank you for the promises that this text affords. Um, thank you, Lord, for the truths that these, this text has taught to us. And I pray we would meditate on these things and apply these things in our thoughts and our understanding so that we wouldn't be deceived, so that we wouldn't be those who merely profess Lord, that we could um, take honest stock of where we're at, trusting you for the power that your indwelling spirit supplies us to live. And for those here who are outside of Jesus Christ, Lord, that they might um, make an honest assessment of where they're at spiritually, that they might acknowledge that they walk not according to the spirit, but they're walking after the flesh, according to the prince of the power of the air after the course of this world, as sons of disobedience, children of wrath, and that, Lord, you would open their eyes to that fact. You would turn them in repentance, turn them from living this futile existence for themselves in this short life, and turn them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That they might live forever, and free to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, according to the Spirit, for your glory. And that, Lord, we know will be to our eternal joy as well. We thank you, Lord, for this text. Thank you um, for our time to consider it. Lord, this is a blessing that we count from you, and we're grateful for it in Jesus' name. Amen.